well, welcome to Everyday Anarchism. And my guest today is uh, my my personal favorite writer about football or or soccer, David Goldblatt. David, thank you for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, David, I asked you to come on the show. I'm, I'm going to air this episode right around the beginning of the World Cup. So I wanted to, to spend some time talking about the Qatar World Cup, which I'm still ambivalent about whether I will even be be watching, but also just the sort of troubling takeover by this game of football, it seems to me, by whatever you want to call it, capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever this centralized, neo-colonial, grasping, environment-destroying world order that we have, it seems to have in many ways captured soccer or football. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to probably use both terms interchangeably. And uh, it seems like the Super League and the Qatar World Cup are both just excellent examples of this of this trend when it seems it also seems to me that what's wonderful about football is the way that it is a game that everyone plays that that anyone can play and i uh and and i see football as it's consumed on television in the united states especially as moving further and further away from this dream of of soccer as we as we want it to be. So that, I guess that's my opening gambit, and you can pick up and run with whatever part you wish. So I think, first of all, on the colonization of football by capital, um, of course, historically, you know, economic forces um, and economic institutions have been a presence in football for, I mean, since professionalization came along and people were being paid under the counter. Um, and that has taken many forms over the last 140, 150 years. But I think it is fair to say that since the arrival of um, the internet and satellite television and pay-per-view television, the uh, amount of money uh, in the game, um, and not just from television, but from all of the innumerable ancillary industries from betting to sportswear um, that are dependent upon it, um, is in a completely different space. Uh, I mean, we've reached the point where the European football industry is now worth more than the European publishing industry. Wow. I find completely extraordinary. Um, and that certainly wasn't the case a decade or two ago. Um, but alongside that, and I think, although interlinked, should be thought of as a... Uh, a separate kind of power and a separate kind of colonization has been the presence of political institutions and political projects in football. And again, nothing entirely new. You know, the 34 World Cup was Mussolini's, the 78 World Cup was the Hunters. Um, Silvio Berlusconi kind of wrote the playbook in the late 1980s and turned cultural capital at Milan um, into eventually, you know, becoming prime minister of italy um but over the last 20 years um 25 years i think again we've seen a step change in the scale and level of intervention um across the world i mean we live in an era where the central committee of the chinese communist party has made it an official marker of development that the china will uh, achieve xi jinping's three wishes that China will um, qualify again for the Men's World Cup, host the Men's World Cup, and by 2050 win the World Cup. <laughs> um, 
Argentina, you know, in recent years, the government actually nationalized the television rights of the top league and put it out for free on cable television, accompanied by an enormous quantity of government advertising. <laughs> so, you know, in across the world, you literally can't name a country now anymore where politics and football are not at some level intertwined uh, and that political power is making its presence felt. Um, so in that regard, you know, the Qatar World Cup is a fitting World Cup for this age of football it is um on a scale economic and political that exceeds anything that has come before i mean economically you know qatar has spent at a conservative estimate a quarter of a trillion dollars on the infrastructure program that has occurred parallel to the world cup much of which of course would have occurred without the world cup but the World Cup has given it a kind of focus and direction and kind of catalyzed the scale of it. Um, and $250 billion, just to put it in perspective, is significantly more than all of the World Cups and all of the Olympic Games ever all put together. It's kind of Bangladesh's GDP. And, you know, Qatar also uh, believes, you know, and argues that in the post-hydrocarbon world that it acknowledges that it is coming, um, sport in general and football in particular will be an element of whatever this post-hydrocarbon economy is going to look like in Qatar. So there's a lot economically riding on it. And then politically, lots of states have used football and hosted tournaments um, as a form of soft power. But Qatar is in a completely different terrain on the scale and the sophistication um of what it has attempted to do um i mean winning the world cup in a sense is you know like a completely extraordinary extraordinary play that they managed um but you know the money they've invested in their own league the creation of the aspire academy um the sifting of maybe five million young players across africa and asia with a view to bringing them to the aspire academy the um scouting and tutoring of every single last qatari child um the creative for football skills the creation of being sports which is the dominant sports and football broadcaster in the arab world a very significant presence and with political and cultural tentacles more widely. And that's not to mention, you know, the 150 other major sporting events from the Asian Cup to the World Club Cup to the Tour of Qatar cycling event that's been hosted over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, so that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, most, you know, and again, it's interesting that they focused it on, you know, football. This is not just about an elite project. Um, which many forms of soft power are, you know, in diplomacy and aid programs and so on. But, uh, but you know, this is the world's game. Um, and, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense because Qatar is a small, vulnerable, small peninsula stuck on the backside of Saudi Arabia, which has never reconciled it really to its independence. It has the UAA looking crossly at it from the east. And it has Iran and Iraq and all of that instability immediately to its north. What are you going to do? 
Well, obviously, you know, you build the Americans gigantic air base from which most kind of aerial uh, activity uh, in Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq has been launched for the last decade or so. And you make yourself visible. You make yourself known. And, you know, art, tourism, all of that stuff's great, but like nothing comes close. Nothing comes close to football. So it is absolutely central to Qatar's foreign policy and to its um, infrastructural and development policy. So that's like new territory. Um, so in that regard, yeah, uh, however, whatever one thinks of it, or however one wants to judge these things, it is definitely a World Cup for our, for our age. Um, the European Super League... I'm not we sure that if is. You, if you want to take a little bit more time with the Qatar World Cup and sure. see if we get to the Super League, it's up to you. Sure. Okay. Um, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the Qatar World Cup and another of its superlatives is that it is, of course, the first in a Muslim majority Arabic speaking country. And if football's kind of cosmopolitan and universalistic claims to mean anything, this must be considered a good thing um uh in and of itself perhaps in a kind of alternative uh parallel universe you know we'd be having a peaceful celebration of cosmopolitanism in the joint iran iraq world cup or maybe a levantine one that crossed syria and uh and lebanon and jordan where football is also you know maniacally popular but we are that's not happening so that seems to me that seems to me a good thing um I think the second thing is that this is going to be the most watched World Cup ever. I mean, really, the numbers, I think, are going to be more extraordinary than ever. You know, the three largest countries in the world, China, India and the US, 20 years ago, football still a pretty marginal, marginal popular cultural phenomena. It is now increasingly significant in all of them with an ever increasing of viewership particularly for something like the world cup uh and of course you know technology is ubiquitous access to these things is ever easier and it was interesting to note that russia 2018 was a um 40 of the audience were women mm. and that's of marked rise and i think that's just going to continue so i think the audience i don't think anyone will have ever watched you know personal boycotts aside I don't think anyone will ever have watched anything as much as this World Cup. Um, and of course, it's in a Northern Hemisphere winter. So that's disappointing in the Northern Hemisphere, in that all of the outdoor gatherings that have increasingly become a feature of World Cups. And I think one of the kind of nicest things about them, actually, is that the World Cup increasingly happens not just in the stadiums or people's homes, but in kind of public spaces, in parks. Uh, in bars, in kind of warehouses, you know, where people kind of gather to watch the thing collectively. Obviously, there'll be less of that in the global, in the uh, in the northern hemisphere because of the um, because of you know the winter, basically. But um, there we are. It's better than playing in forty-five degrees centigrade, which is what we'd be looking at if it was played in June and July when FIFA originally said okay to the project. Um, so they're all really interesting. Yeah, they're interesting things about it. But of course, it's a really controversial World Cup. Um, 
partly because it is so many things to be controversial about but it's also i think this is worth noting certainly compared to russia 2018 or beijing 2022 olympics Qatar's relatively open you know for foreign journalists even though they're slapping all sorts of film permit controls on people and journalists have had a difficult time but compared to like russia or like dealing with the uyghur areas of china you know it's um it's been much more open so i think you've had much more um critical scrutiny than you had and there was a lot to be critical about russia and uh 2018 you know slave north korean slave labor massively corrupt stadium programs huge demonstrations against welfare reform during the world cup but made invisible in non-world cup cities i mean i could go on but barely any of this registers qatar also cares what people think i mean that was the point of the project the russians and the chinese they didn't give a shit in the end you can make all the criticisms you like in the uh in the liberal global north but like it doesn't make any difference they don't care but qatar cares so it has a kind of um yeah that stokes the fires and i think it's also the case that um while one of the consequences of formal political power um taking so much of an interest in global football is that lots of other people have cottoned onto this that there is a archipelago of resistance of critical thinking of challenges from below you know from fan organized stuff from investigative journalists from human rights organizations there's so much more of that than there was 20 25 years ago and um you know human rights watch and uh, the guardian and amnesty international have run very effective um bits of research for very effective campaigns across the board and kept this thing yeah kept the critical flame burning so that's it's you know it, it's uh it's a shame not a shame but it's just notable that this nothing has, has had this level of scrutiny even beijing 2008 you know which had all sorts of good reasons to be critical of that in the end no one could get inside china not really but this is different so you know what people what are the debates here um okay first of all did they buy it you know how did they get it and it's like the sunday times said they did in their investigation qatar says no no we didn't and i say we know how politics worked at fifa in 2010 i mean we knew anyway but the fifa gate revelations made it all transparently clear we know that no world cup has you know no world cup has got a um has been awarded without some kind of business being done since france 1998 so why would qatar be any different why would russia 2018 be any different so you can correct me on this but if i remember correctly fifa more or less admitted that there was irregularities and then they were just like too late though or, or something like that i mean I well it's you know irregularities you know there was a lavish a lavish campaign you know by both the russians and the uh the qataris target all the usual suspects 
FIFA's own, um, you know, infrastructure and kind of, you know, official report on the Qatar bid said, you know, it's great, but it's mad. You can't play here in the summer. <laughs> and people just went ahead and went, yeah, whatever. And thus necessitating yeah. the entire rewriting of the global football calendar for like a three, four year cycle. Um, then there's the alcohol issue. Some people have got a you know a problem with that i mean certainly in latin america and europe it's the drug of choice uh and an essential component of elements of the culture um i have less of a problem with that i mean it's really not a human right to get really pissed you know uh, there will be beer it'll be bad beer it'll be <laughs> weak beer it won't be in the places that you want but there will be beer and it will have, you know, C2H5OH in it and it will get you pissed. Um, I think bad, cheap beer is the average American football game experience as well. So that's 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 not something I'm going to be crying about either. And it's like I went to the, you know, the women's Euros final at Wembley this year. No one was drunk, mm. not a single drunk at an England-Germany game. It was great. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Nobody stuck a flare up their ass. Nobody was a coked up maniac screaming in my face. And it was a really amazing atmosphere. I mean, I'm not for, you know, I'm not a prohibitionist, you know, <laughs> everybody should be able to have a drink. But actually, I think the low alcohol model of, you know, of uh, football, it's got something going for it, I would say. Um, and then there's the rights issues. I mean, again, um, you know, homosexuality is illegal. And for all the kind of, you're yeah, welcome vibes, you know, everyone will be welcome vibes, you know, LGBT folk definitely feeling worried and concerned about policing of their sexuality. Um, women's rights have really, you know, common practice is not a billion miles from where Saudi Arabia is, although women do hold very significant positions in cultural and educational institutions. You have a huge level of um, higher education amongst women in Qatar. I mean, it's a really interesting, I wonder where that social conflict is going to go. You can't send a generation of young women to university and then try and lock them into kind of patterns, the patterns of uh, control that you have in Saudi Arabia. So I think that's a really interesting conflict quietly boiling away inside Qatar. I um, think it's uh, I think it's boiling over right now in Iran with protests that are driven by primarily it seems educated women, women who had a chance to get an education but then were asked to, you know, uh, precisely to knuckle under to these patriarchal strictures and that's that's happening in Iran and it seems plausible that something like that will be happening in Qatar in the not too distant future. Yeah, I mean, the systems of repression are, are very different. Yes. In, I mean, you know, you don't have the religious police, you don't have a theocracy. It's complicated. Um, but yeah, that's that's to come, I suspect. Um, and obviously, yeah, I mean, the press thing is mixed on the one hand. I mean, obviously, sort of, you know, Qatar is a pretty much an absolutist monarchy power is restricted to a very small number of people around the royal house the democratic kind of structures that do exist you know barely exist 
but you know like we all went to russia <laughs> we all went to china i mean i i'm not saying that these are not unimportant issues um but the debate about qatar that focuses just on qatar for all of these things it's like you've got to zoom out and say okay so what's the big picture on the staging of global events are we only going to sweden if we are fine but that's like then the whole world is not coming so that doesn't work so where do you draw the line and how do you draw the line i mean answers on a postcard really it's complicated i'm not saying uh it couldn't be tighter i mean i just think it's also how accountable and how kind of it's about who's kind of making decisions inside these big organizations and how they're recruited and that's a whole nother debate about the democratization of uh of international sports federations um so yeah qatar's a mix i mean it's much more open than you know reporting on china but it also gives you know distant journalists a hard time i mean the qataris are a complicated old lot you know on the one hand arabic al jazeera which you know is is theirs um is a voice for provides a voice and a platform for opinions that are just not being heard in most of the arabic speaking world where harsh conditions of censorship apply on the other hand like critiques of the qatari state that's not <laughs> happening and both things is like both things true you know um and then there's the workers rights issue i mean This is a really huge and incredibly important thing. Um, and it's been driven slightly, unfortunately, by a numbers game. Um, and I understand why, and I'm not saying it's unimportant, but I think it kind of slightly has slightly obscured uh, and made, made the debate more untransparent than it could be. So, you know, the, the human rights uh, folks are saying as early as 2013, based on, you know, projections but looking at kind of current data and given how many you know migrant workers there are in qatar two million in total out of a 2.3 million population six six thousand people are going to six thousand are going to die by the time the world cup is staged would feel like oh my god that's like unbelievably awful right however one it's a projection two not all migrants um who die die at work um, three, it includes migrants like a second generation Indian accountant who's 63, who has a heart attack at his desk. Um, this is more complex. You know, actually, everybody's been playing fast and loose. On the other hand, you know, the Supreme Council for Delivery and Legacy, aka the organizing committee, is saying three people died on our sites. And it's like, yeah, but you know, there's the 34 that you say are non-work related deaths in a country where the um, the whole system of recording deaths and medical investigations and coroner's reports until very recently been a complete disaster. Um, you're only looking at the very top flight of World Cup projects that you directly control. And to be fair, you know, they have insisted on, you know, the stadiums in particular, the very, very highest sort of standards in Qatar because they know the lens is on them. Um, but then there's like the great big, you know, supply chains, what's going on there and what's going on, um, you know, in the wider infrastructure projects of which, of course, it's all sort of part and parcel. 
Um, the figure's probably somewhere in the middle, you know, in the thousands maybe. But I kind of think it's partly not that this is unimportant and not to dismiss it, but there's something you've got to pull back and look at the bigger picture as well, which is like how many people have had life-changing injuries? That's a huge thing. How many people have come and gone and never been paid? Um, you know, there are all sorts of other, you know, really terrible transgressions of uh, workers' rights alongside the deaths. And I think we need, you know, we've got slightly fixated on that. Um, and, you know, remember, as big as those numbers are, this is from a population of 2 million people. So the Qataris have even argued that mortality rates, if you kind of compared what the mortality rates of the populations that are in Qatar were, were they at home, actually it wouldn't be that different. I'm not in a position to, I'm certainly not a sophisticated enough epidemiologist to be able to engage in that debate seriously. Um, but yeah, that's where we are. And it's like, whatever the numbers, you know, the kafala system, which is also in operation in the rest of the Gulf, which is the private um, migration uh, and labour market regulation system in the Gulf, you know, is a nightmare. The inequalities and injustices and abuses that result from it are obvious and awful. You know, when you have to have a personal, um, someone who's personally like your sponsor, who has control of your travel documents, decides if you can leave the country or not, uh, decides if you can change a job or not in a place where there's no trade unions, no legal redress, you can't possibly trust the police, um, et cetera, et cetera. And abuses have been widespread and not just in, you know, World Cup projects, but like imagine what the state of play for a lot of domestic workers is. Pretty, pretty grim. Um, however, and this is always the case with Qatar, it is, it is complex to make a really nuanced judgment is that the kafala system has gone in 2017 after various attempts to stave off more serious reform they made an agreement with the ilo international labor organization that uh, is part of the un who opened a doha office and they began a process to dismantle kafala and replace it with a kind of modernized legalistic bureaucratic impersonal labor market regulation and migration visa system and in 2020 they did that um and uh is it perfect is it sweden like is it fuck you know trade unions are banned legal redress is still pretty minimal um the uh inequalities um you know of day-to-day -day life that make workers so vulnerable um continues to persist implementation is always a huge problem in Qatar. you know you can have a minimum wage and regulations around this and that but unless people are checking so all of that remains very much a question mark and there are also people in Qatar who would like to get rid of it after the world cup because they're making a lot of money out of the old system there is of course a more progressive wing uh including i would say the people who run the world cup who don't want to turn the clock back uh, and that's an interesting kind of internal Qatari conflict. So how are we to judge this? You know, well, we can say too little, too late. You know, it's very easy to be sort of moralistic, you know, finger wagging. And there is a place. I mean, a lot of people have died. It's been really miserable for so many people. Um, 
On the other hand, you know, the claim is made that international sports events in closed and authoritarian societies open them up to international norms and force nudge a degree of progressive change. You know, that was the argument made certainly about Beijing 2008 and how we laughed. However, however, on this occasion, that is precisely what has happened. Um, I mean, it's also a testament to a very effective campaign run by the NGOs. You know, they've been really on this. Um, and a groundswell of support in a kind of more politicised global football culture has been supporting them. You know, the Norwegians backing them, the Danes are going to protest with their black in mourning, third kick for workers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think, yeah, that's where we are with that. I mean, I would not choose to be a worker in the Gulf, and I am privileged and happy to say that that is not my not my fate but were i to i would not be going to saudi arabia i'd be going to Qatar. for what it's worth um environment so again it's a mixed story you know Qatar 2022 is the most again it's interesting how times change critically examined for its environmental credentials in a way that no sporting mega event has ever been there was a bit of this around Beijing 2018 and its artificial snow. But Russia 2018, you know, an insane carbon intensive event built on hydrocarbon money. Nobody was like, I didn't hear a damn thing. I didn't hear a damn thing sponsored by Gazprom. Qatar, you know, is being much more critically examined. The world's changed. The climate crisis moves on. The relationship between sport and climate is much sharper and much more in focus. And the Qataris, again, to their credit, uh, and FIFA is part of this, have a much more substantial, serious environment policy than anyone's ever had before. Um, and with that, of course, comes scrutiny. You know, so we find on the one hand, you know, some really serious efforts to invest in solar power, to dismantle stadiums, to have a vaguely plausible use for big stadiums that are going to be taken apart. I mean, they're quite good, actually, on a lot of that. Um, you know, and a massive great offset program for all the carbon that will be burnt flying there. But then we find, you know, inevitably, uh, carbon comes along, um, carbon market watch and goes, oh, I think you've massively underestimated the... Uh, <laughs> The, the emissions associated with building stadiums and your offset program is incomplete and like really renewable energy people are going to do that anyway that's this is just replacement and that's a whole debate about whether offsets are kind of actually a meaningful and permissible and responsible way of dealing with this so you know Qatar it's interesting the Qataris have made you know if if other sporting events kind of went down their path that would be a significant advance. On the other hand, you know, in the cold light of day, we find how far they and everybody else is falling short of what needs to be done. And I don't know. There's like just in my guts, what I find in a way most troubling about Qatar is here we are in a place that's heating faster than anywhere else, literally on the earth burning a lot of carbon at a time when there isn't much time left to play international football. Really? 
how much longer can we carry on doing this and that's i don't know what the answer to that question is but it troubles me and i put it i just put it out there um you know and it's what's interesting with qatar i suppose for me one of the other things that's interesting is that all of the reasons that people rightly criticize and admonish what the Qataris are up to um, and their reliance on autocracy, hydrocarbons, etc., um, migrant labor, poor working conditions. It's like football, wake up. What have you been doing for the last 20 years? You know, Saudi Arabia at Newcastle, UAE at Manchester City and nine other clubs, Gazprom sponsoring Schalke, Red Star Belgrade, FIFA, the Azerbaijani National Oil Company sponsoring Atletico Madrid, you know, the Marathis at, uh, at Inter were oil billionaires, you know, all those people who wear shirts and kick footballs and, you know, and boots where the workforce is getting less than 1% of the price that you paid for it. And we know the conditions. So I'm saying, like, that doesn't make Qatar's issues okay. But it is so much part of, like, actually, this is the world we all live in. And we're all, we're all part of. So I understand folks who want to personally boycott, that's fine. I don't have a problem. I don't, you know, admonish them. I wonder whether it is better, A, to look, and B, in the end, you know, if you really want to make a political statement about this, it's got to be collective. Yeah. You know, politics is like individual boycotts and what about him? It's like this doesn't move shit, you know. And I think this, of course, is one, you know, a, a dilemma many people encounter. Like, what can I do? Where do I hang my hat? How do I square all of this? And, you know, if there were more forms of collective action and organisation, you know, then that would be, but that the football world is struggling still, as indeed global civil society is, to find those ways of doing it. So again, you know, certainly from the perspective of the interested sociologist, Qatar 22 sure is a tournament for our times. I taught a class this morning, David, about the lack of collective action. I mean, this is this, you know, that wasn't what the class was meant to be about. But the students just, you know, Black Lives Matter. They're, they're thinking about that. And they're just what you know, they they asked me to compare what's going on in the world today. in terms of collective action to the 60s. And I was just like, there's no there's no comparison. Uh, there's there's not that kind of collective action. I mean, I, I perhaps there would be collective action around the Qatar World Cup from fans or teams or something. And, you know, wearing black is not exactly uh, the kind of thing I had in mind. I mean, you know, what do, does one have in mind? And it's all too late. I mean, it's like you want to organize stuff like it's. We're in October. It's happening in four weeks, you know. Politics takes time, takes yeah. organization. Um, I mean, I think, you know, myself, you know, good for the Danes. And I think they're also punting up some money. And that is, 
that's an interesting thing i mean that's somewhere where people could like can, could conceivably take their energy or their concern is that amnesty said about three months ago said okay you've made all these changes we know there are still problems and we know above all that a lot of folks who came to qatar had to pay up basically bribes illegal bribes to agents to get them there that leave them in sort of debt penury um so fifa should put up 10 percent of its prize fund for uh money to um compensate all of these folks and the qataris can pitch in as well and i think let's let's back that yeah good let's do that you know grand gestures and being cross are all very well but nothing beats putting money in the pocket of people who've been ripped off that would be an absolutely like that that's a legacy good let's do that you know it doesn't make it perfect but good let's do it and you know it's not even that much money we're talking about like a billion dollars you know that's like one percent of the uh, less than a half percent of the cost of the whole show you know it's a frat fifa half a billion i mean they can get away with a couple of hundred million it's not a big deal in the scheme of things you know like their earnings six billion is the is like the total income maybe more on this one so that's the place people can go get on amnesty's website check out what they're up to you know put your name to it Okay, great. I'll put a I'll put a link to that um, in the show notes. I guess you know one thing I I do want to point out um, to echo you. I mean, you you've mentioned China and Russia. It's and and the the European uh, takeover of many of these great uh, clubs by petrodollars. I also just want to make clear that anyone who's anyone who's living in a Western industrialized society is obviously dependent on, on these industries, these laborers. I, I'm, I'm very concerned about this world cup, but I don't want to suggest that I'm sitting here living some life that is, that is not dependent on migrant workers, the food I eat and the clothes I wear as much as I try, I do my best, but nevertheless, we are all part of this system. Sorry, go. You, you can go right ahead. No, I'm just, I just like just agreeing with you. You know, the message of the Qatar World Cup is structural change and collective action, people. Yes. yes. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like sociology of politics 101, but it's like individual, individual gesture, you know, and minor consumption alteration are all very well and have their place, but actually. If you really what this shows is the depth of structural change required in the global economy um and um the need for massive collective action i mean this is true you know we know this from climate um yeah. and this is sure as hell true in football as well well this this will bring me now to the the super league because yeah. I, I was struck uh i'm blanking the name of this guy's name is pete but he said that you know when the Super League happened, there was grassroots resistance to it, and that, to a certain extent, shut it down. And there was no such thing with the Qatar World Cup. There was, you know, the possibility, as you say, it's too late. Well, we've known about this World Cup for a long time. The collective action happened almost overnight um, with the Super League, and nothing happened with the World Cup 
that I know of, and that just I don't I don't have an answer for for why that is, but it just seems like we we we've reached a point where we believe there's nothing we can do about it. And I think people were surprised that they were able to do something about the Super League. Uh, in the case of the Super League, I mean, all the protests came from England. So it's not really Italy. The Italians and Spanish weren't uh, part of it. Um, and in England, it's about the mobilization of club identities, isn't it? Yeah. And networks of fans. And of course, actually, you know, despite the scale of commercialization and policing of football stadiums, they remain a place where spontaneous grassroots collective organization and collective action is the norm that's partly why we go because we go to experience that and be part of it so people are very well aware of their own kind of potential and have pre-existing networks both formal and informal of friendship season ticket blocks you know formal fan organizations etc that means in an instant bang you can you can put people on the street and do stuff and i think what really riled people is the whole relegation promotion thing i mean english football likes to um you know it likes to kid itself that uh bristol rovers you know under the right circumstances really could make it <laughs> to the top you know um and that you know the mighty really can fall given uh and of course you know it's a sort of touching belief in social mobility that doesn't really bear much relation to the world. But there it is. It's a kind of utopian hope. And that that's I think that really, really got on people's got people's goats. So in some ways, it's not surprising, you know, and at Manchester United, where, you know, probably some of the biggest protests were and you actually had a pitch invasion and a game cancellation. You know, this draws on. 15 years of sporadic struggle with the Glazers. You had a huge fight uh, and protests like that when the Glazers took over in 2005. You've had the green and gold stuff over the years. There are people who are ready to have, you know, and organised and up for it already. And, you know, add, add in the Super League's, you know, um, obvious kind of awfulness that you can see how it would trigger those kind of reactions. Yeah, I, I I think we'll have to we'll have to leave it here because we're running out of time. I am I remain very interested in football's potential as one of the few places where grassroots organizing does and still can exist. And then at least as an American, I have watched American finance billionaires, Middle Eastern and Russian petro billionaires, and then a variety of media moguls and just unsavory types from Europe take over the the game and I I would love a a, a grassroots restoration it seems like that's uh, uh, the the dream that must remain if we're going to continue to love football and yet I don't I don't see that coming on the near on the near horizon I would love it if you could tell me it was well what I would say is that you know, we probably could have said something similar 25 years ago, albeit mainly about local millionaires and, you know, <laughs> more local and national unsavory characters rather than the sort of particular configuration of the global super rich that we're now dealing with. But at that point, we literally would have had nowhere to look for signs of collective organization and resistance. And I think over the last 25 years, 
that's emerged. I mean, certainly in England, you know, where the Football Supporters Association has actually proved to be a very effective lobbying and mobilising organisation on a variety of issues, um, where dominant um, narratives about the uh, game, you know, are now being challenged by a much more interesting critical press, both mainstream and on social media, where you have much more widespread forms of fan organisation that are kind of orientated a bit towards governance rather than, you know, fighting. Um, you know, we have uh, a much expanded um, network of uh, fan-owned clubs or part fan-owned clubs, and that's not just in um, England, but also in Scotland, in Croatia, in Poland. Um, you know, Germany remains its 50 plus one model and alternative. Um, and then across, you know, the range of social movements on, you know, issues of race, disability, gender, sexuality, environment. There is now a presence in football of athlete activists, campaigning networks, information organisations, you know. And of course, it's uneven, you know, like some places this is not happening at all. Some places, you know, it's all happening, um, but it's out there. Like I said, it's a very fragile archipelago um, and it's not all connected up. But football remains a place, as you say, where people value um, the collective, you know, the collective goal, a sense of sort of justice and inclusivity that has a kind of reach in, you know, in an era where most political ideologies have lost a lot of grasp on the general public consciousness and imagination remains a place in which some of these things can be learned and rekindled. So, you know, man, as you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the world. What else are we going to do? <laughs> All right. Thank you, David. That's a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.